ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The conversations we've had today, the end of logging and the future of native forests on the one hand, and the exportation and imposition of, of British parochial architecture on places and geographies, utterly incompatible, uh, on the other. And they both raise the question of how we think about this place and how, in full recognition of our past, we might be able to think about the future of this land and all of our places within it. Michael Sean Fletcher uh, is a biogeographer, a descendant of the Wiradjuri people and director of research capability at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute. Now, he has thought long and deeply about these questions. Michael Sean, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Your country, just describe that for us. My people's country is, my family's up around Cowra, which is inboard from Sydney, I guess you'd say, for people who want a geographic reference. Uh, we're part of uh, Wiradjuri Nation, which is one of the largest Aboriginal groups in the country. And it's that kind of transitional land between the, the wetter east coast moving through to the drier interior. So it's a beautiful part of the world and one with a really strong uh, Aboriginal community and a, and a strong Aboriginal culture. Where I am now, though, is on Boonwurrung country, south of Birrarung, the Yarra River in, in Melbourne. And I've lived my whole life here, actually. My, my parents moved down down south when before I was born. So I'm essentially a, a product of Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri country, really. What's the, what's the idea of country that you carry with you between those places? How does, how does country manifest in your, your mind and spirit? It's a great question uh, and something that I've been thinking very deeply about myself and with uh, many of the Aboriginal groups that I've been working with for a long period of time now. Country is the world around us and that includes us. It's the connection between, I guess, the living and non-living. Um, it's, it's the place that gives us our sustenance and the place that we must care for in order to, to keep ourselves healthy. So it's, it's really this embedded notion of, of everything around us, including ourselves, is country, which I, I think, and, and I don't want to sort of create too much of a, of a contrast or, or an antithesis, but it, I think it's really different than the way that, that European cultures engage or see the world around them, which is kind of embedded in this uh, Enlightenment sort of um, era, age of reason, nature-culture divide, this sort of Cartesian split. So it's, it's very much a, it's everything around us, including ourselves and the relationships between us and, and the relationship between things. I mean, it strikes me from what you say there that, that only that, that sort of post-Enlightenment European culture could come up with the concept of wilderness. Yeah, very much. You know, if you look at the word wilderness, and I'll use that as a proxy for, for this kind of way of thinking, it surges in the, the English lexicon, sort of in books and things like that, or you just jump onto Google and you can look at the, the use of words through time. It surges every time British or English-speaking people encounter other places, new places. This word of wilderness uh, surges in its use, and it's, it's really a product of, of encountering landscapes and places that are different and then viewing them through the, the prism of your own experience and what you expect humans to be doing, that what constitutes landscape management or, or engagement with landscapes and, and producing cultural landscapes. And it looks nothing like what colonial Europe uh, looked like. So there's immediate assumption that people are absent from the scene, that natural processes dominate, 
um, and that the people living in these landscapes are simply just, you know, in, in their kind of romantic notion, just sort of noble savages wandering around passively in the landscape, just eking out a, a wonderful existence like the Garden of Eden kind of thing, you know. So it's a this very colonial northern view has been imposed across the global south and in, in North America as well and other places because of the the stark contrast in the way that people are engaging with landscapes and what they're doing in those landscapes. And then we come to um, that sort of subsequent notion of protecting areas of, of country, of, of, of colonial culture, post-colonial culture, setting aside wilderness, in quote marks, of setting inside country for, for preservation. What's your, what's your take on that, the, the conservation movement, I guess? Yeah, yeah, and if you look, you know, once again, I, I sort of mentioned that um, tracking the use of the word wilderness through time, the most recent surge, you know, began in the, in the 60s through to the 70s. It really arose out of a recognition, this awareness of the damage that was being done to places by a particular type of activity from, from particular methods of engagement with landscape, like clear felling or mining and doing these large-scale damaging things that really... Uh, only certain cultures do. And it was this recognition and this built on this kind of house of cards of, well, these landscapes were, were perfectly fine in the absence of people, their wildernesses, we've got to get people out. So by then really pushing this notion of wilderness, talking up how valuable and how precious they are and how much better they are without people. And, you know, from this comes things like ecological footprint, this notion, this really dualistic notion that, you know, either landscapes, humans have a taint, and then the only landscapes that are valued in this prism are landscapes without human activity. And that's just a product of the same, same thing. These landscapes are wildernesses that have no people. We've got to return them to that, whereas that's a complete myth. I mean, these landscapes, through all of the, the work that we've done, both in Australia and, and abroad, and other people have done as well, show that these landscapes were managed landscapes in the, in the global south and in North America and all over the world, Africa as well. These are managed landscapes that people have been practising culture and managing and manipulating for thousands and thousands of years. And that actually, and the perverse perversity of this is, is that by artificially creating wilderness of these, of these places, in these places, is actually destroying the values that people covet it's removing the critical factor, which is human management, that has given them the biodiversity that people value. Tell us more about your research, and I'm, I'm intrigued as to how this is determined empirically. How, how are you going about that? Yeah, well, the, the first um, step in any of my research is, is communication with and engagement with and then, and then sitting down and talking to traditional owners to try and get an understanding of, of country uh, through their eyes. Because knowledge is, is something that's, that's developed in place, you know, so I can maybe have a particular knowledge about where I am, but when I'm going into a new location, I really need to sort of understand the world through um, the eyes of the peoples whose land it is. Take a step back. A lot of these changes began 200 and something years ago, and in, in southern South America, that, you know, 600 to 700 years ago. You can't get too much empirical information out of you know, written accounts. There's a certain lens you can get through those, but they can be criticised for being imbued with a romanticism or rose-coloured glasses or whatever it is that the writer was was writing through, what cultural bias that the writer was writing through. So one way of actually getting empirical data is by drilling into to lakes and swamps and soils and other areas of sediment accumulation 
And these are recording atmospheric information through time. So, you know, you and I are sitting here right now, we're, we're breathing in all sorts of things. Our lungs, luckily, are great at filtering that out, but it's got pollen and all these kinds of things in the air. All of that information is a product of whatever's going on around it in the environment at the time. That gets layered down on the sediment and buried and buried and buried. And I have records that have gone back continuously for a million years, for example, um, usually a lot shorter, especially in landscapes where, you know, 20,000 years ago there might have been ice. So you're getting anything since then. Anyway, you, you take the core out until it goes down to whenever that little wetland started becoming a thing. And then you slice the material through time from the bottom to the top. So you're going from old through to young and analyse uh, what it is you're looking for. So in my staple, for want of a better word, in my scientific work is pollen and charcoal. Mm-hmm. So that's pollen for vegetation and charcoal for fire. And I have and I continue to reconstruct vegetation and fire regime changes you know, ranging from a million years ago right up through to the present and by understanding what events have happened, you can understand what the landscape response to those events was. And without fault in Australia and the work I've done in Chile and work that colleagues have done in other places around the world, the biggest change that has occurred over the last five or 6,000 years, okay, we're not counting the, the last ice age, which is a very big global radical shift. Now, the last five or 6,000 years, the biggest shift to have occurred was the invasion of these landscapes by Europeans and British and the removal of the traditional management. And you see all sorts of things happening. You see in some landscapes, such as Tasmania, where rainforest was being held out to promote grasses by Aboriginal people, you see rainforest jump in. Some of these areas are are in the Tarkine right now, which is this prized wilderness in Tasmania that people are fighting for that was radically different under Aboriginal management. And you see on the mainland of Australia, uh, a shift really from quite open landscapes across southeast Australia to essentially landscape splits into two. The landscape either where Europeans went and put their farms and things becomes significantly open and fire almost disappears and people are chopping down trees and curating these small patches. And the rest of the landscape is pretty much neglected and you see fuel loads increasing and you see fire catastrophic fires increasing because... Aboriginal people were managing across their estate at a small scale. The main management regime here is to manage intensively in farms and kind of turn your back on forests, if that makes sense. And yet, what you described there, I mean, this is, this is the story of, of maybe 60, 70, 80, 100,000 years of human intervention in this place. Uh, and, and, well, not human intervention, human um, co-relation within, within a natural world. And yet... If, if that is removed, there is this instinct in other aspects of the natural world to create that sick country, for the trees to grow, for the rainforest to consume that space. I, I mean, there's an interesting paradox in that. There, there is still a naturalness in that, um, you know, the vegetational assertion, is there not? Yeah, oh, very, very astute point, Jonathan. It's a that's true. I think the, the thing that we often ignore here is what do we want out of country? You know, we have a, a society now and we have a lot of money being spent on, on triaging biodiversity loss. We have a lot of money being spent on uh, mitigating catastrophic fires because of the damage they do to all sorts of things, mm-hmm. including, you know, pollution and air quality and all these kinds of things. I think we're confused. You know, we have 
I don't think the right way is just reasserting ancient landscapes uh, because landscapes aren't museums. They're constantly moving and changing. What we need to do, I think, and we don't do enough, is lay out what our expectations are of, of the world around us, understand that we are not separate from the world around us and that leaving areas alone comes with a consequence. And to some people, that consequence might be a positive, to others it might be a negative. In Southeast Australia, in, in the, the high biomass uh, flammable forests, the consequence of catastrophic fires that are going to roll through like 2019, 2020 bushfires. Mm. And you're going to have to deal with those if that's the way you want to treat it. But without addressing that deeper question of what we want, I think we're just going to be, continue to be confused. What uh, I'm kind of trying to elucidate here is that, that these myths that the landscape at the time of the British invasion and even now are wildernesses and are better off in the absence of people are myths that they will destroy the things that you value if what you're valuing is the biodiversity that was here at the time of the British invasion. And in a more perverse way across the world, these wilderness myths are used to exclude Indigenous people from their country and their ways of lives. And you see this in the Amazon, you see this in Southeast Asia, Papua New Guinea, places like this, where these strong wilderness myths are picked up by NGOs and, and um, this protection at all costs and removing people and people are then denied their agency and their ability to, to live out their lives in the way that they have customarily done so for thousands of years. And then that also damages that country. Michael, these are big thoughts and, as, as we say, very, very timely. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks a lot for the conversation, John. It's been great. Michael Sean Fletcher, biogeographer, director of research at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute, the University of Melbourne. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 